0: What does motion sound like?
1: With Kizik Han's free shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion.
2: Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. Tonight, straight from the source, President Biden urging the world not to grow weary on standing with Ukraine, but that might be a tougher sell in Washington. The Republican chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee is here with me. Plus, what a central witness in the Trump classified documents case has now reportedly told federal investigators, something that the ex-president apparently urged her not to tell them. And if Rudy Giuliani did not have enough legal problems that were already facing him, they just got a lot worse. He is now being sued by his own attorney. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. In a rare visit to the United States, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky is issuing a blunt warning about Russia, saying that evil cannot be trusted. He was speaking today to world leaders at the United Nations General Assembly here in New York in person, but it's not clear if all of the world leaders who were in the room, or even some Republicans in Washington, got that message. This is what Zelensky told Wolf Blitzer about what is on the line in this fight.
3: We hear their voices on the front line and we hear them and they're demotivated, the Russians are demotivated, they're afraid of us. And all Putin wants now, all things he wants us really, to push United States, to change the minds of society, to push EU partners, to change the mind of the people of EU countries. He understood that only by propaganda he can not win, he cannot to lose this war.
2: President Biden is also here in New York where he sought to rally other world leaders behind Ukraine, urging democracies to stand by their core principles.
4: Russia believes that the world will grow weary and allow it to brutalize Ukraine without consequence. We have to stand up to this naked aggression today and deter other would-be aggressors tomorrow.
2: If you were listening closely to President Biden's speech today, that message was not just intended for the world leaders and the diplomats who are gathered here in New York. That impassioned plea was also intended for lawmakers back in Washington, where some Republicans on the far right are fighting against more funding for Ukraine. That is only part of why we could see the 11, be just 11 days away from the federal government running out of money. The Republican Party is so far apart right now on agreeing on how to fund the government House Republicans were even voting against their own defense bill on Capitol Hill today. That almost never happens. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is working furiously to keep his party together, but also to keep his job. All of this is happening as President Zelensky is set to visit Washington later on this week. Tonight, one of the key Republicans who is not only meeting with the Ukrainian leader, but who is also on the front lines of fighting to keep the government open, is here with me. Let's get straight to the source with the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Texas Congressman Mike Michael McCall. Congressman, thank you for being here. President Biden says that the U.S. will continue to stand with, quote, the brave people of Ukraine. But a vocal faction of your party is saying no to more money. Do you think your party will eventually vote to pass another aid package to Ukraine?
4: Well, I do think uh, the majority, the majorities, both House and Senate, support this effort. Uh, we'll be meeting with Zelensky on uh, Thursday. Uh, that would be House Republican leadership. Um, but I think we also uh, need answers. I mean, we, uh, to have a supplemental dropped on us, uh, we need to know, uh, a lot of members want to know, what is the, the plan for victory? Um, what, why aren't we putting the weapons into Ukraine that they need to win, rather than a slow bleeding survival rate Uh, that was counterproductive to the counteroffensive. So I I think you have Republicans wanting to support this, but seeing the administration not really managing it very well. uh, And they also want to make sure that our NATO partners are paying their fair share of the, the price tag on this.
2: But a lot of the Republicans who are voicing opposition to funding more funding for Ukraine aren't making those conditions. You know, Some of them are. People like Speaker McCarthy is talking about wanting to know where it's going. But several of them, them are not. They're not saying they have questions. They're just saying no more funding, period.
4: Right. And I, I think that's uh, still not in the, the majority. Um, but I will say that uh, um, I think it is in our national security interest uh, for Ukraine to win but we need to see a plan and perhaps Congress should be drafting the plan for victory. And, and I think that's one of the bigger issues here is that we don't want a, a long dragged out war. Putin wants a war of attrition and that's what he's getting right now. And the longer this drags out, the more difficult it's gonna be because he knows he can drive the will of the American people down and perhaps our European uh, partners. I wanna see Ukraine win because it has enormous stakes from a national security standpoint it will directly impact how Chairman Xi and China views Taiwan. So now we have the largest invasion in Europe since World War II, greatest threat to the Pacific. Um, and if we don't get this right, then we're gonna find ourselves having to commit U.S. troops, which so far we haven't had to commit one U.S. soldier.
2: Well, given that, Congressman, when Speaker McCarthy was asked today about committing to another round of funding, this was his answer.
5: Is Zelensky elected to Congress? Is he our president? I don't think I have to commit anything. I have questions for him. Where is the accountability on the money we already spent? What is the plan for victory? I think that's what the American public wants to know.
2: You're talking about the majority of the majority supporting this. I mean, does that sound like a House Speaker to you who does want to pass more funding for Ukraine?
4: Hmm. Well, the Speaker I know supports uh, our efforts in Ukraine, but he's raising questions that we hear from our conference, you know, all the time. And I think you know we're going to meet with Zelensky. Uh, I, I certainly support you know, this effort uh, but I think there as this war drags out, there are more and more questions from our members about what is the plan for victory. Why aren't you putting the weapons in necessary to win rather than to just survive? Uh, this counteroffensive has not gone as well as we had hoped um, and we don't want a long dragged out war of attrition but you know the White House and Jake Sullivan have taken the slow walk in terms of weapon systems, why aren't they giving the attackums that can hit Crimea? Uh, I don't understand that. And I've, I've been a strong critic about this. Now, I'm going to support Ukraine because it's the right side of history and the right thing to do. But there are mounting and growing questions within uh, our party and our conference. Uh, And questions that, quite frankly, deserve answers.
2: I also want to ask you, given you are the chairman of House Foreign Affairs, about this deal that was made to bring five Americans who were wrongfully detained in Iran home. I mean, we saw their families celebrating, crying as they were finally able to greet them and to hug them. Do you think that this was the wrong deal?
4: That's what we're worried about is because, uh, well, first of all, uh, to unleash uh, and un. and and freeze freeze up these these sanctioned assets. $6 billion to the largest state sponsor of terror. You know, the JCPOA under Obama was only half a billion dollars. Now we're pouring $6 billion into uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran that they will then, and I was told for humanitarian purposes only, but now we heard from the President of Iran That's going to be used for any purpose they want. That would include uh, their terror proxies, whether it be Hezbollah, Hamas, Shia militias, uh, all throughout the Middle East. And since that time, you know, you've seen uh, Iran kick out a third of the IAEA, that's the International Atomic Energy Agency's Mm -hmm. inspectors out of Iran. And now the Saudis are questioning whether they should be doing this deal with Israel. It's having a direct impact and, and, and Caitlin, to be honest with you, our chief negotiator, uh, Mr. Malley, now is under investigation for the mishandling of classified documents. And we still haven't gotten to the bottom of that. So there are a lot of but unanswered on the, questions. On
2: the assets themselves, I mean, they are they're frozen Iranian assets that were in, in South Korea that they're essentially unfreezing. It's not like it's U.S. money that is going to this. And the White House says they will have a strict oversight of it. But I do want to ask you, because all of this is part of, uh, separate from Iran, but back to Ukraine, we we're talking about that, what we're seeing happening where you are on Capitol Hill right now, this fight over funding the government, I mean, House Republicans today were even voting against their own defense bill. Is all of this, all of the fight that is happening over spending and funding the government really worth jeopardizing service members' paychecks?
4: No, I I don't think so. I I agree with you. I I think um, in the 20 years I've served in Congress, I've never seen the rule brought down on a defense appropriations bill. Uh, I think it's disrespectful to our active duty. Uh, to our veterans and our current service members. Uh, they deserve better than this from Congress. Uh, it's a good bill. Um, and you know, you know who's enjoying this more than anybody, Caitlin, is uh, Chairman Xi in China. He often says to the, the President side of Taiwan or he says it to us, you know, democracy doesn't work. Democracy is a failure. I can make a decision like that, and I am more effective than democracy. And what I worry about is we just proved him right with this vote today, taking down the rule on a defense appropriations bill that is desperately needed. I'm a conferee to the National Defense Authorization Bill, which is an authorization, but for God's sakes, if we're gonna authorize but not fund our Department of Defense, uh, we're putting ourselves in jeopardy and emboldening our adversaries Which I would say, you know, this Ukraine thing is tied to that as well, because, you know, you're talking about Iran putting drones in Ukraine. Now Putin is begging Kim Jong Un, panhandling for weapons and money, and he's aligned with this. uh, So why is your party so
2: dysfunctional? Why can't they get these spending bills passed?
4: It's it's a it's a handful. But they're able
2: to take down potentially not funding the government.
4: I think against the will of the American people. You're talking about five members. Uh, that don't represent the conference in my judgment they may have their own reasons but i don't quite understand it and i think it's dangerous because our adversaries are watching and when they see something like this take place on the house floor um, it only emboldens our adversaries it does not strike any fear into them Um, and that's dangerous
2: i want to follow up with you on something you said recently about the impeachment inquiry that has just been launched into president biden this is what you said for our viewers who didn't hear that
4: With respect to foreign policy decisions, the president may have made or vice president at that time with respect to money coming in to try to tie the two. We don't have the evidence now, but we may find it later.
2: Congressman, are you acknowledging that you do not have the evidence against President Biden? If so, why pursue that impeachment inquiry? Why not just have the committees that were having these investigations continue to do so? Why take this next step if there's not evidence to back it up?
4: Well, I think there is enough—I mean, I was was a U.S. attorney. I I think there's enough—there's predication, enough predication to open an investigation into that. And what do I mean? $20 million in wire transfers going to Hunter Biden and possibly family members. And it's not just me. The judge, the federal judge, threw out the plea agreement, which is almost unprecedented, based upon the amicus brief of the IRS—you know, the the whistleblower— that talked about how his leads to the family were cut off by higher levels at the Justice Department. That's not supposed to happen at justice and that's why the federal judge did what she did. It's also why Merrick Garland has now appointed Weiss as a special prosecutor to well, investigate we haven't seen this very, tied directly very to very President
2: issue. Biden. That's the issue I think that people have raised with the inquiry. Well, it's too
4: it's too early in the investigation. I mean, the Justice Department has decided to open this investigation. The federal judge thinks it's warranted. am not i President
2: Biden. That's, Hunter, I'm, I'm, Hunter Biden is separate from this. I'm saying any evidence directly tying it to President Biden? I mean, that's the impeachment yeah. reason to President Biden, not Hunter Biden, obviously, as you know. Well,
4: I worked at DOJ for many years. I worked on the Johnny Chunk case where we had all this money coming from China into shell corporations and then laundered to, to go into the president's reelection. Uh, this is nothing new, whether it be China or Russia. Uh, the money. I mean, when you got that kind of money going into shell corporations that have no legitimate purpose, that automatically raises an alarm and a flag. And I think it warrants an investigation, not just by the Justice Department at the behest of the federal judge, but also by the Congress.
2: Yeah. Still no direct evidence to President Biden. We will wait to see, obviously, if this finds that. Chairman Michael McCall, thank you for your time tonight. Thanks,
4: Caitlin. Thanks for having me.
2: Also up next tonight, there is brand new reporting from the New York Times on a key witness in the Trump classified documents case. This is a longtime aide to the former president who worked for him in the White House, traveled with him to Mar-a-Lago, and now apparently has been talking to federal investigators and has told them something he did not want them to know. Plus, Rudy Giuliani already struggling with his mounting legal bills. Now his former longtime lawyer wants him to pay up.
0: That's A-N-G-I dot com.
2: A close aide to former President Donald Trump, who followed him from the White House to Mar-a-Lago, has now reportedly told investigators that he wanted her to apparently lie to them, or at least certainly not tell them the truth. Molly Michaels was an assistant, Trump's assistant, in the White House and after his presidency. And The New York Times is reporting tonight that Trump wanted her To say that she didn't know anything about the boxes containing classified documents that were found at his Florida resort and taken with him when he left office. When he learned that federal officials wanted to speak with her, he told her, according to the New York Times, "quote You don't know anything about the boxes." That, of course, would be the boxes that, per this federal indictment, were openly stored in a -a Mar-a-Lago ballroom, in a bathroom, among other places at the former president's property. Michael also reportedly told investigators that Trump would use cl- documents with classified markings to jot down to-do lists for her. For a perspective on what this evidence means to investigators, I am joined now by former federal prosecutor Elliot Williams and former deputy director of the FBI Andrew McCabe. Elliot, let me start with you. I think the obvious question here is how strong is this testimony? Could it be when it comes to, to what Trump is facing, which are obstruction charges?
6: I, look, these are acts of obstruction, at least as alleged. Now, I don't think, based on what's available right now, that the Justice Department would charge him with obstruction just for this conduct here. What you have is the statement of one witness. As far as we know, uh, it's not corroborated by anything else. There aren't text messages establishing it. But look, this is an act of obstruction of justice if what she's saying is true. What you have is a defendant who is aware of an, of an open investigation, and he's urging another person to either influence delay or prevent her testimony. That's right out of the obstruction of justice statute. So at a minimum, it's valuable testimony. It speaks to sort of character and misconduct and, and a guilty mind, even if they don't charge him with it specifically.
2: Well, and I think it makes an important point there, Andrew McKay, because this isn't just one isolated thing. I mean, we already know from the indictment that Trump uh, made a plucking motion with his hand when he was speaking with his attorney, Evan Corcoran about documents that the attorney believed meant, you know, if there's anything bad in there for him to to essentially remove it. So taken all together, what does this mean for their case?
7: Well, you know, I think it shows us, Caitlin, that the prosecutors have a lot of evidence that we're not even aware of yet. Right. The the indictment itself was incredibly uh, detailed, kind of a speaking indictment, as they like to say. And it certainly gave us a great vision into the strength of their case. But beyond that, they are sitting on the testimony of witnesses like Michael, uh, who provide these incredibly vivid um, glimpses into the way business was done uh, in and around Mar-a-Lago. And I think you know the this uh, the reporting that we're talking about tonight about this uh, alleged comment that you know to Michael that you don't know anything about the boxes. The context is incredibly important. So allegedly he made that comment to her after she told him that she'd been requested to be interviewed by the FBI. So in response to learning about her uh, imminent interview with the Bureau, uh, he responds with essentially a direction to forget anything you know about the boxes, or you know you don't know anything about the boxes. It's it's really very damaging, uh, very damaging testimony, potentially damaging testimony to the former president, and it's just a piece of what we're learning right now. There may be many others.
2: Yeah, and Elliot, I mean, Chris Christie has been not shy when it comes to criticizing Trump. He said last night that. All the comments Trump keeps making about the election subversion case, you know, could make his attorneys want to vomit, I believe was the quote that he used. He was also asked about this new reporting tonight, and this is what he said.
8: The worst is when he called that assistant, when she was going to go before the grand jury and said, you don't know anything about my boxes, my boxes of documents. I mean, that is active witness tampering.
2: He's a former federal prosecutor. What do you make of that?
6: Uh, I think he's absolutely right. It it, it is active witness tampering. And it actually might be able to be admitted as evidence, even if he's not charged with that specific act. Because this is sort of touches on what Andrew was talking about before. There are other instances of a specific intent to obstruct justice, the plucking motion, take these documents out and so on. And it might be able to come into court where you could have Maggie Michael come in and testify that, oh, and look, on another occasion he's not charged with this conduct, but on another occasion, he sought to have me do almost the same thing. It's a pattern of conduct in the same scheme of events. But I think the governor is absolutely right there. This is tampering with the witness. It's, you know, when you charge someone with a crime, you have to sort of fit their conduct to the statute and statutes aren't always written entirely clearly. This one is, it's if you're tampering with someone to get in the way of their testimony. And that's kind of what Maggie Michael at least appears to be saying happened here.
2: And Elliot, you would call her to testify?
6: I, based on what is publicly available now? Yes. But again, I don't know, for instance, her background, um, if there's anything that on which she could be impeached uh, in terms of credibility. Um, I don't. Again, I don't know this individual. Does she have a criminal history or anything else? Those are the kinds of things that prosecutors have to think about before right. deciding whether to call somebody. Could they be undermined in some way? But but based on this reporting, certainly, and it's just reporting, it's well, certainly valuable.
2: And Andrew, I mean, obviously, the other the immediate thing that you think about when you read this story is usel Taveras, the IT worker who was also told to to instructed to delete surveillance footage. I mean, these are all people that could be people who worked for Donald Trump. Some still work for him that could be called in that very situation to testify.
7: Yeah. So as we've all been kind of expecting after the drop of the indictment, you're now seeing the government line up full-blooded cooperators who are going to take the stand in the government's case and testify against their former boss, the former president of the United States. So um, Tavares is a key witness, but even Tavares, uh, to, to what we know so far, once publicly reported, didn't have a direct interaction with Trump about the direction to delete the alleged direction to delete the servers. Uh, Michael is potentially more significant in that regard because what she's relating is a conversation with Trump in which he is allegedly making this direction to obstruct uh, obstruct justice and impede her testimony. So it could be very powerful testimony.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. It's one step closer to him than the other witnesses. Andrew McCabe, Elliot Williams, thank you both for your expertise on this tonight. Up next, the head of the United Auto Workers Union is now pushing back at former President Donald Trump, who is planning his own trip to Detroit, as the first ever strike against all big three automakers at once is now well into day five. The head of the United Auto Workers Union now on day five of a strike against the big three automakers had some blunt words for former President Donald Trump after he announced plans to skip the second Republican debate next week and instead counter-program with a speech to auto workers in Detroit. The UAW president, Sean Fain, wants essentially no part of that visit and said today, quote, every fiber of our union is being poured into fighting the billionaire class and an economy that enriches people like Donald Trump at the expense of workers. We can't keep electing billionaires and millionaires that don't have any understanding of what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck. Fain has not exactly, I should note, had kind words for President Biden either. Despite how the president embraced his strike and some notable comments last week, Joining me now for perspective on all of this, former Biden White House communications director Kate Bedingfield, and the former Republican National Committee communications director Doug High. Lots of communications experts here. So, Doug, I'll start with you. I mean, Trump is clearly trying to win over the rank and file members here. He's criticizing the leaders in this strike. I mean, how does that work as he's trying to court the voters? Do you think he has any chance of success here?
8: Well, there there's a real difference. You know, there's the medium and there's the audience. And the medium is exactly that. The UAW, uh, the leadership, the, that, those places where he would go to and go through. The audience is much broader than that. That's everybody that Donald Trump appealed to in 2016. A lot of whom he lost in 2020 to Joe Biden. But that where he had a message that, remember, he said Hillary Clinton says I'm with her. I'm with you. That's going to be Donald Trump message here. Uh, when he speaks to auto workers and the broader audience that that looks at this. And that's where Donald Trump could have success here. And it's why I think Democrats should be a little nervous here. Donald Trump gets it in a way, and I say this is somebody who's not a fan of Donald Trump, he gets it in a way that audiences outside of those thought bubbles in Washington and New York, and in this case, Detroit, uh, understand and cause real consternation, I think, potentially for Democrats.
2: Kate, you worked in the White House not that long ago. I wonder what you make of, of the situation playing out now where President Biden had said he was going to send two of his top aides. We've now learned apparently that trip has been scrapped. Is We're seeing some lawmakers like Congressman Ro Khanna saying, you know, that Biden himself should join the picket line. If you were in the White House, what would your advice be?
1: Well, I would want to do everything that I could to show that President Biden is standing with the workers who are out on strike. And I'm certain that that's what the president and his team are doing too. But they're going to do that in a way that uh, is working uh, with union leadership, making sure that they are providing uh, help and resources where the union uh, wants it and not where they don't. So, but I think, you know, the the thing here that is different, I, I was listening to Doug and I, I agree with some of what he was saying, but, you know, there's a really key difference here between uh, 2016 and now, which is that, you know, Donald Trump is effectively an incumbent. Donald Trump now has a record four years of factories closing under his watch, of jobs going overseas, of him saying things like your job should go overseas and then you can negotiate better deals here and let's see how you like that. So he has a record that he has to defend. And I think the contrast there with uh, President Biden, who has created 800,000 manufacturing jobs since he took office and has, uh, has helped has helped lead a manufacturing boom in this country, that economic contrast is, is, uh, is intense. And, and that's where the Biden campaign is going to try to drive the, uh, the comparison here.
2: Yeah, though, I mean, the UAW hasn't endorsed him yet, saying he's got to earn it. Uh, But, Doug, for your party, Senator Tim Scott had an interesting comment today compared to other 2024 hopefuls who are all being asked to weigh in on this when he was asked. He invoked former President Ronald Reagan, who, of course, once fired more than 11,000 air traffic controllers who were on strike. This is what Senator Scott said. Ronald Reagan gave us a great example
4: when federal employees decide they were a strike, he said, you strike you're fired. Simple concept to me. To the extent that we could use that once again, absolutely.
2: I mean Doug, the difference here is United Auto Workers members, they're not federal employees. The president can't fire them. I mean there's federal labor laws also that that protect them. I mean, what did you make of those comments?
8: I think it highlights, and we've seen this on a lot of issues, the way Donald Trump's entrance into the Republican Party and then obviously running for president has caused Republicans to morph in so many different ways and then split. And so what Tim Scott is stating is where Republican orthodoxy uh, may still be, certainly used to be, Donald Trump is presenting a different vision to that where a lot of the party is gone. Think about the issue of trade as well. And here's where it gets slightly complicated Caitlin, is, you know, when you were talking to Mike McCall, one of my favorite members of Congress earlier, talking about the shutdown, the longer if a shutdown happens, the longer it goes on, the more unpredictable it is on how there's a resolution and what the fallout may be. The longer this strike goes on, the same thing.
1: Kate, do you agree with that? I do agree with that. And I, I would feel confident that the White House uh, is, is, again, working to try to help come to a resolution as quickly as possible, however they can help do that. Uh, so certainly, I don't think anybody uh, wants to see the strike uh, extend on and on. Of course, there's unpredictability when you do that. But again, I think for the president, uh, the key here is for him to use this moment and to use Donald Trump being in Detroit next week to really draw the comparison on who has stood for workers and who's made this economy better for working people like the people
2: who are out on strike right now. Chubb will be there on Wednesday night. Of course, we'll watch that closely. Kate Bedingfield, Doug High, thank you both. Thank you. Ahead, an emotional reunion happened today for five former Iranian hostages who are now back in America, hugging their loved ones for the first time in a very long time. Someone who knows all too well what a hug like that feels like is here with me tonight. Former Russian prisoner and U.S. Marine Trevor Reed joins me next.
1: Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app.
2: Tonight, five Americans have been reunited with their families after being freed from years of wrongful detention in Iran. The man you see there descending those stairs is Siamak Namazi, pausing taking his first breath on U.S. soil for the first time in eight years. He and four others embraced their loved ones on the tarmac outside of Washington as one of the Americans was overheard telling his wife and two daughters, quote, home." over the last two years, we counted, 30 Americans have been freed, including WNBA star Brittany Griner, who, of course, as we all remember, was released last December after nearly 10 months in Russian captivity. And also Trevor Reed, a Marine veteran who was freed in April of last year after being wrongfully detained for nearly three years in Russia. And Trevor Reed joins me now, of course, has the only you know best perspective that only very few people do. And Trevor, I know you believe that the criticism that we've heard over the terms of this deal, the unfreezing of the $60 billion in Iranian revenue is unwarranted. That Of course, it is also important to note this was not U.S. taxpayer money. But I want to listen for those who haven't heard what Republicans are saying about this deal.
8: It is a quid pro quo. It is called a ransom payment. The latest example of President Biden rewarding and incentivizing Tehran's bad behavior. Americans are now more of a target uh, for uh, Iran than they were before.
2: Every enemy we have are now going to be realizing that if they take Americans, they can get $6 billion, too.
4: We will never, ever pay ransom to terrorists or terrorist states.
2: Trevor, what do you make of that?
3: Uh, Well, first off, I'd just like to say that uh, that has uh, no no bearing on reality. So if you look at my case uh, as one example, the Russians took Paul Whelan hostage. Uh, they, When the U- United States asked them to release him, they immediately asked for concessions to make an exchange um, to get something in exchange for Paul, and the United States refused to negotiate with them, which is what a lot of people are saying. Well, if you negotiate with them, then there's no reason why they should take Americans hostage. So the United States did not negotiate. They refused to negotiate to bring Paul Whelan home. And after that, the Russians took me hostage. At that point, the US government also refused to negotiate to get me home. And after that, they gave Brittany Griner a hugely disproportionate sentence, which was completely political. So. If you just look at that one example, um, I think you can see anyone that is reasonable can see that you're refusing to negotiate with these governments does not guarantee that they're not going to take other hostages. And any of those governments that are already taking Americans hostage, they don't need an incentive to take Americans hostage. They're going to continue to do that. Their incentive for taking Americans hostage is that they're Americans and they can show that to their own citizens that they've done that they've spieded the US they've embarrassed us and the United States can't do anything about that that's enough for them they don't need material concessions a hostage money you know if they can get those things they will try to do that but that's not going to stop them from continuing to take hostages
2: yeah and you also seem to be seeing this through the lens of even if a prisoner swap or a negotiated deal like this one is potentially politically disadvantageous to, to a lawmaker or to a president, or even maybe strategically the risk here, you still think it's the right move to make?
3: Absolutely. And, um, you know, President Biden and his administration doing this, um, They've obviously done that because they thought that was the ethical decision to make. Uh, you know, President Biden and his administration are are not fools. They knew that as soon as they did this, there was going to be harsh criticism of that administration. And this is, you know, quite soon before an election. Um, so I think that him doing that, that was probably rooted in his his morals and his feeling that he needed to do what was right uh, you know over politics
2: i just seeing the images of the americans returning home i mean it obviously made me think of, of you returning home and obviously you know your parents have been outside the white house so many times advocating to to get the white house to negotiate for your release i mean you know what it's like what are, what are they going through tonight
3: uh you know, everyone handles that differently and goes through, you know, their own experience. But for me, um, you know, especially those first hours, they're just uh, just incredibly surreal. You don't feel, feel like it's real. You feel like, you know, maybe that's not happening. Maybe you're imagining that. Maybe you're dreaming that. Uh, and it takes a while for that kind of feeling to go away before you can start feeling, you know, actual real emotions.
2: Yeah, I can't even imagine. I don't think many people can. Trevor Reed, thank you for coming on and sharing your experience with us. Thank you, Caitlin. Also tonight, another story that we are tracking, Rudy Giuliani. We have talked about this many times. He was already strapped for cash. His former client, Donald Trump, is not directly helping him with those melting legal bills. He's refused to do so directly. But now Giuliani's longtime lawyer and defender is suing him, marking a new low for the former New York mayor. Rudy Giuliani was already on the verge of a financial breaking point, but tonight his problems have gotten much worse. He is now being sued for more than $1.3 million by his own lawyer. The firm that was representing Giuliani says he only paid $214,000, a small drop in the bucket of the $1.5 million that he owed. His most recent payment was just for $10,000. And adding to the problem here is that Giuliani already owes millions of dollars to various law firms, not just this one, when it comes to fees related to his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Those bills just keep piling up as he is not just facing that, also a sexual assault and harassment case, and could have to pay damages for his lies about two Georgia election workers. Of course, on top of all of that, the 13 criminal charges over the attempted election subversion in that Georgia case. Andrew Kurtzman has literally written the book on Giuliani. He's here with me. He is the author of Giuliani, The Rise and Tragic Fall of America's Mayor. Before we even get to the money part, Andrew, I mean... Bob Costello and Rudy Giuliani have had a relationship that dates back decades. I mean, this is a big breaking point.
5: Sure, almost half a century. And, you know, I don't think that Giuliani values anyone as much as his former Justice Department colleagues, right? It's his life as a prosecutor is, like, intrinsic to who Giuliani is. And so Giuliani's comment today, it, it had a note of betrayal, right?, He's, you know, I can't believe that he would do this. But then in classic Giuliani fashion, then he attacks him right, for inflating the bill.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's that's what he said. How can he take a personal affront when he owes my firm nearly $1.4 But I mean, Giuliani in his statement said, quote, I can't express how personally hurt I right. am by what Bob Costello has done. Right. And saying that he had, this was an excess of legitimate legal fees.
5: Right. I mean, Bob Costello has played a very important role in Giuliani's um, recent life uh, uh, since taking over, I guess, as attorney and about four years ago. I mean, Costello has tried to get Giuliani out of trouble almost as fast as Giuliani has gotten himself into trouble. I mean, the, one of the striking things about the lawsuit I read today was just how much trouble Giuliani has gotten himself into over four years. It's, it's, uh, Costello has um, represented him through four investigations, three of them criminal, Ten civil suits, two disbarment hearings, and I don't even know if that includes the sexual harassment suit by a former employee. I mean, Giuliani ha- has just this deep attraction to danger, and his, you know, he has no one to blame but himself. I mean, all of, the, all of the problems that he's facing right now are a result of his personal recklessness, which is a Giuliani trait.
2: But when you mentioned the last four years, I mean, all of that also goes back to his dealings with Donald Trump
5: that at all. That's true. I mean, there was the Ukraine scandal. There was the effort to overturn uh, uh, the election, right? There was the defamation case that he triggered by, um, by criticizing those two election workers. There was Dominion. There was Smartmatic. I mean, he's, you know, it's all in service of, of Donald Trump. And I think if, you know, one day Giuliani ends up sitting in a jail cell, he's really going to have to think through whether it was all worth it.
2: When you look at the big picture of all of, I mean, you and I have spoken a lot about Rudy Giuliani and you covering him, what he was then, what he is now. This break with Bob Costello, his own attorney, a very loyal defender of his. Right. I mean, where do you put that and what that means to all of this?
5: Well, I mean, Giuliani's going broke. He's going broke and he's facing prison. And, you know, the his catastrophic trap, his catastrophic fall is just one of the great kind of rise and falls of our of our generation. I mean, Giuliani was once worth 100 million dollars. His his Giuliani Partners was founded right after 9/11 to capitalize on his 9/11 fame. Mm-hmm. the The place made 100 million dollars over five years. Giuliani has squandered it. He's had several divorces. He lived uh, very high. His his ex-wife said that they were burning through $250,000 a month on sheer fun. A month. A month. <laughs> I mean, he lived very well, and now he's penniless and facing prison. It's an extraordinary story.
2: What's what's the future for Giuliani look like?
5: I, I mean, it's very hard to see how he gets himself out of all this trouble. You know, if he, I mean, he's just facing so many civil suits, so many criminal criminal investigations. He's in a world of trouble.
2: Yeah. Andrew Kurtzman, you have documented all of it. Thank you for joining with your expertise tonight. Thanks for having me. While a government shutdown is looming, some Republican senators have been squabbling about a newly relaxed dress code, taking special aim at Democratic Senator John Fetterman, who says the right is, quote, losing their minds over it. I'll tell you more next. Tonight in Washington, America's leaders are fighting for style over substance. All because Majority Leader Chuck Schumer directed the Senate's sergeant-at-arms to no longer enforce the chamber's formal dress code. This move was seen at least partially in response to Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman's preference for wearing shorts and a hoodie around the Capitol instead of a suit. Some lawmakers, a lot of Republicans that we heard from, are not on board with this change, however. However, Senator Shelley Moore Capito called the decision, quote, terrible. Senator Chuck Grassley said it stinks. And Senator Susan Collins even threatened to wear a bikini to work, though she said she wouldn't actually do that, just noted that she could. Asked to weigh in on the fashion fight, Fetterman said, quote, Oh my God, the Republicans think I'm going to burst through the doors and start breakdancing on the floor in shorts. I don't think it's going to be a big issue. We'll keep you updated if that happens. Thank you so much for joining us. See you in prime time with Abby Phillips starts right now, Abby. All right, we'll
1: see how long that one lasts, <laughs> Caitlin. I don't know. Once they start to see those shorts, who knows what's going to happen. Now streaming
6: exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.